0: Well, I want to be, I want to say two things, first of all. That was marvelous music. Thank you so much. Joyful praise. Yeah, give him a, give him a hand. Give him a hand. The other thing is that this morning, some of you know that our pastor has dubbed me with a nickname. He even quoted scripture, I think, out of Zedekiah, um, where a pastor can take somebody once a year and give them an honorary doctorate, and he has given me the title of Doctor of Socks. Some of you know what that is, that I'm known for my bright socks. Well, this morning when I came in, several of the ladies particularly wanted to know what color socks I had on. And folks, they're just plain black. And I said, if I'm going to be up on the platform and if I'm going to be behind a sacred desk, I'm going to wear plain old socks. So Judy... I was glad when I came in and saw the bright colors that she had on on our top. Didn't she look good this morning? I was glad to see that. One of us has got some color. Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation, that's all the way at the end. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to (coughs) 7. Revelation 5, 1 to 7. And as you found that, would you stand please with me in honor of God's word. Stand for the reading of his word. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven... No one on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures. And the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that's ours to look at your word, to see how worthy you are. That's been our theme this morning, that you're faithful and that you're worthy, and we thank you and we praise you for that. We know that in all things, you do well. We thank you, we ask your blessings on this hour this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. <coughs> As we look into this text this morning, Revelation 5, we see that a little bit of introduction material is needed. And in chapter 4, let me just go back to that to set the stage for this, just the first three verses. John writes, after these things I looked and behold. That's a, a familiar phrase with John in the book of Revelation. He says, after these things. What things? This is the letters to the seven churches. They've been written, the rapture has taken place, and now we see that After these things, I, John, looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. Now, in case you didn't know, that voice that he heard we find in chapter one of the book of Revelation, it was the voice of Jesus himself. So Jesus is saying to him, John, come up here. I'm going to show you some things that have to take place after these things. And immediately, John says, I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow round the throne like an emerald in appearance. For those of you that are familiar with the jasper stone, today the jasper is usually a brown orange or red colored stone it's opaque you can't see through it but the stone that is called a sardis stone in the word of god is a diamond it's a bright clear shining diamond a diamond that is more pure than that which we see today and the sardis stone is like a ruby so get the picture that's here god is sitting on the throne the walls here are diamonds and there are rubies and there's an emerald throne a rainbow around the throne is this majesty or what is it not so when John sees, arrives there he sees God himself sitting on that throne John sees heaven this time arrayed as a courtroom and God is preparing to unleash his wrath and the seals that we're going to talk about this morning in the midst of this awesome scene we see that heaven is filled with the praises of God. We've praised God this morning in worship and in song. We've listened to it in song. But, beloved, that's going to pale in insignificance to the worship and the praises and the song that's going to be in heaven. Heaven understands now what the Lord is about to do. And its inhabitants praise the Lord for his glory, his power, his creation, but they're also acknowledging his right to judge the earth. And John sees heaven in order to give him a heavenly perspective concerning what's about to happen on the earth. When we look at things that happen on the earth, we've got an earthly perspective. And it's covered with fear and doubt and confusion. But when all of the events of history are seen through the eyes of heaven, then everything makes sense. So chapter 4 ends with God's receiving the praise of his created beings, his redeemed ones, Heaven throbs with the voices, caught up in their love for God. The rapture has taken place. We're up there now. And now, chapter 5, finds us in the same throne room of heaven. Now, praise has ceased for a moment. Now, things have stopped. Heavenly business is about to be transacted, and we're going to have a front row seat, beloved, as it's acted out. We're about to find out that in heaven... Jesus is the central figure. He's the center of attention. Heaven will be a glorious, wonderful place. Judy mentioned earlier about, as she gets older, praying more, looking forward to heaven. Well, I got 10 years on Judy, so I can look even more forward to it. Those of you that got 10 years on me, there aren't very many of you here, but don't you look forward to it? Don't you look forward to the fact that there's going to be streets of gold? We're going to be kicking up gold dust. (laughs) Kicking up gold dust. Walls of jasper. Remember those diamond walls? (laughs) We're going to see those gates of pearl. More glory than you and I can ever imagine. And it'll be great to see Abraham and Moses and Paul and Luke and the rest of them. But I want to see Jesus. The main attraction of heaven is Jesus himself. So in this passage, we're going to see Jesus himself in his rightful place, glorified, exalted in heaven. This passage, this section of scripture that we've read in Revelation 5, sets the stage for judgments that will come during the tribulation. It also reveals Jesus in his exalted glory. So let's look at these verses and consider the thought, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Chapter 5 begins. God the Father is holding a book. Now, it's not a book like you and I think of a book like this. It's a scroll. And what happened in those days was that paper was written on long sheets of papyrus, and they, I don't know what the, the methodology of papermaking was in those days. I'm sure that it did not smell like our paper mills of today. Please God, it did not but it was made in long sheets of paper. And they would write on it, and they would roll it up a little bit, and then put a seal on it. And then they'd write some more and roll it up and put a seal on it. And then they would write some more and roll it up and put a seal on it. So what happened with this is that this is a scroll that's got seven seals on it, and it's a mysterious scroll. We don't know what's on it yet but we can unravel the mystery of what's on that scroll, so let's do that. The character of the scroll, as we, as we read these verses, it becomes very clear. First, it has to do with man, in verses two to four. Second, it has to do with the earth. And in the next chapter of Revelation, chapter six, the seals begin to be opened, and when they are, the contents of the scroll is read, and they reveal what's going to be happening on the earth during the tribulation period. And thirdly, this scroll has to do with redemption. When Jesus takes the scroll, and we'll see that he will in a minute, he's praised for his redemptive work. The Bible is a book of redemption, isn't it? Redemption is something we talk about a lot. It's an important truth. Understanding redemption is vital to understanding God's great plan for the ages. Everything that God does, everything that he has ever done is related to redemption in his redemptive plan and work. To understand redemption, we need to look back to the Old Testament times. In that time period, <coughs> three things could be redeemed. A slave could be redeemed. If a master lost a servant, he could pay a redemption price and buy that servant back. That's what Jesus did when he came to die on the cross for us. He bought us back. We've been bought with a price, Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians. I'm reminded of a story that I've heard often. Heard it often from the same preacher over and over and over again. My wife will know this story. She's heard buddies tell it many times. About a little boy. And he was pretty handy with a a knife and whittling. And he got a block of wood and he, he made a boat. And he fashioned this boat and he put a stick in the center of it And he put a little sail on that boat. And then he would go out with that little boat. And there was a pond out behind his house. And he'd set that boat and the wind would take it back and forth, back and forth. And he loved that little little boat. He had more fun with that. But you know, one day the wind changed direction. And it blew the little boat across the pond, across the lake. And the boy ran around to the other side of the lake in the wooded area and he couldn't find it, it was gone. And he looked high and low, he looked in the water, he looked in the bushes, he looked in the trees, he could not find his boat. All heartbroken, he went home. Wouldn't you know, two or three weeks later, he's walking down through town, and there in the pawn shop, in the window, is his boat. His little boat, he recognized it, he'd made it, he knew what it was, that was his boat. And he went into the pawn shop, and he said to the owner, how much is that boat that's in the window? The owner looked at the little boy, and he knew he probably didn't have much money. The boy said, I'd like to have that boat. He said, well, son, he said you can have it for $2. The little boy reached in his pockets, and he didn't have $2. He said, but I'll tell you what, I'll be right back. And he ran home, and he got his piggy bank out, and he broke it open, and he picked out $2. He ran back to the store, and he bought that boat. And as he came up, he held that boat in his arms. He said, little boat, you're mine. First I made you, now I bought you. First I made you, now I bought you. You're mine, and that's what Jesus says to us. First I made you, now I bought you. But not only could a slave be redeemed, a wife could be redeemed didn't know I could redeem you. That's a a good deal. But if a woman was left as a widow with no male children, a close kinsman of her dead husband could redeem her and her husband's inheritance by paying a redemption price. You remember Boaz and Ruth, and uh, Boaz paid the redemption price and bought Ruth and her husband's inheritance back. Uh, And that's what Jesus did when he died for us on the cross. He brought and redeemed a bride unto himself. And then finally, a land could be redeemed. Uh, Jeremiah tells us about this. If a man lost land he'd been given as an inheritance, he could buy it back. Uh, Jeremiah 32 tells us about an uncle of Jeremiah's that lost some land, and uh, his son, be Jeremiah's cousin, came to him while he was in prison, and he said, uh, I'd like you to buy this land back, if you would, to redeem it. And uh, the Bible tells us the story that Jeremiah did that recorded the transaction on a scroll in verse 10, Jeremiah 32, 10. He got the scroll and he rolled it up, sealed it, rolled it a little further and sealed it. And in that day they could record information related to redemption on both sides of the scroll. On the inside, they would tell what the reason that the land had been forfeited and on the outside they would write the terms of the redemption. Apparently, there were two copies of that kept. One Uh, was open to the public to read, and the other one was stored in earthen jars uh, for safekeeping. And we see that Jeremiah served the function there of a kinsman-redeemer for property that uh, belonged to his uncle. So what we're witnessing in Revelation chapter 5 is the heavenly version of what men did in Old Testament times. If you'll notice that the book that God holds in his hands is written on both sides. It's written up, and it's sealed, just like a deed. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not die for just us. He died for a ruined creation as well. Paul tells us in Romans eight twenty three 23 and, and 22, he tells us, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So let's look at the contents of the scroll. This scroll that we see that's rolled up and sealed is the title deed, to planet Earth. When Adam sinned, sin entered the universe. Man fell that day, and God's creation came under a terrible curse. We'll never know this side of heaven, the extent to which sin has ruined creation. But we do know that when Adam sinned and when Adam fell, creation fell with it. So here's the problem. When God made man and placed him in the Garden of Eden, God gave man dominion over all creation. Genesis 1. When man fell, Adam gave away his dominion, and Satan became the god of this world. And there can't be much doubt. There might have been a couple of generations ago, but there can't be much doubt today. Who is the God of this world? We know who that is. When Jesus came to redeem mankind on the cross, the blood of Jesus redeemed fallen sinners. But it was also sufficient to break the bondage of sin over creation. The second Adam bought back everything that the first Adam had given away. So this scroll in the hand of God is written within and without, and on the inside is the tragic story of sin, tragedy, death, Failure, defeat, and on the outside are written what? The terms of redemption. And if we could read these terms, we'd find that the Redeemer must be one who is willing to redeem and one who is worthy to redeem. So there's a little information regarding the character of the mysterious scroll that John saw. But for the next few verses, we're going to see that a meticulous search was made to find someone who was worthy to break the seals and to read the contents of the scroll. In verse 2, we see the requirements of that search. An angel asked the all-important question, who is worthy to open the book? The question really is, who is worthy, who is morally fit, who is clean enough to be pure enough to be worthy to open that scroll and to carry out all that's necessary to redeem the earth? Notice The angel didn't say who's willing. There have been many men down through the ages that have been more than willing, but they were not able. More than one ruler has determined that he would have dominion over the earth. Alexander the Great had conquered the known world by the time that he was 33 years of age, and he wept because there were no more lands to conquer. He didn't redeem the world. He left it worse than he found it. And before him, Nebuchadnezzar was seen as the greatest ruler ever. He was not worthy to take dominion either. He left it worse than he found it. Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, Charlemagne, Adolf Hitler, scores of others were even more than willing to have dominion over the earth, but they were not worthy. And soon the world's gonna see the rise of a demonically charged madman called the Antichrist. And he'll come far closer than any other mortal man has. But in the end, He's just going to ruin the world even more. So here we see that God is holding in his hand the title deed to planet Earth. And so far we haven't seen anyone that's worthy enough to open it. But thank God, thank God, thank God, there is one who's worthy to take the book and open its seals and we'll discover why in just a minute. But let's look at the reach of this search that was made. It's through the entire universe for one person who's worthy to take the book and open it. Just one. We don't need a team to open it. We don't need three or four to open it. The search is made for one who would be worthy. And there was no saint in heaven found. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Paul that was found worthy. They searched in heaven above Hell beneath and earth in between, they could find no one worthy to open the book. Gabriel, Michael, all the angelic hosts of heaven, they weren't worthy to take the book. No one living on earth, no king, no president, no ruler, no billionaire, no politician, no scientist, not even a preacher. Not one was worthy to take the book. No demon, no doomed sinner, not even Satan himself was worthy to take the book. They searched high and low, but no one was found who was worthy to even look at the book, let alone take it. But when the results of the search were made public, something happened in heaven that has probably never happened before or since. John burst into tears. There are two words for weeping in the New Testament. One is used in John 11 You're all familiar with the story of Lazarus. Jesus raised him from the dead, and the Bible says that Jesus wept. And that word wept there has the connotation of silent weeping. It's just a kind of a quiet weeping. Jesus stood there at the tomb of his friend, and he just quietly wept. But the other word that's used is when Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And this word refers to uncontrollable sobbing. It's the kind of crying that a child makes when his little heart is broken. Or it's the kind of weeping that you see when someone's lost a loved one. Suddenly, unexpectedly. It's the same word that is used here of John's weeping. John is in heaven. He's weeping out loud because no one's worthy to open the book. They haven't found anyone worthy. And John's crying his eyes out. Nobody can open the book. John's weeping. Why? Because he knows what that book represents. And he knows that if no one can open the book, then creation is doomed to feel the effects of sin for all eternity. And John's tears, beloved, represent the tears of all humanity since Adam fell in Eden. John weeps for us all. But we've seen the mysterious scroll and the meticulous search that was made. And these verses, we're going to meet the one who was worthy to take the book, to look on the book and to open it. We're going to be introduced here to a magnificent Savior. John's weeping. One of the elders comes to him and he gives him some encouraging news. He tells John to wipe his eyes and to stop crying because while no mere man was found worthy, no angel was found worthy, we've found one who is. They've discovered one who is. Let's look at this word together. Notice the elders' words to John. He says, weep not, behold, behold. That word behold just simply means look. It's an emphatic look. Behold, look. He says, weep not, John. Don't cry. Look. And that's the message that the church has been preaching for over 2,000 years. Weep not. Regardless of the problem, Jesus is the answer. Whatever your problem is today, weep not. Jesus is the answer. If your problem is your need of a savior, and if you don't know with the absolute assurance that if you die this minute, you'd be in the presence of God, then you need a Savior. And if, that's not, if that is your problem, weep not. Jesus is the answer. If your problem is lack of finances, weep not. Jesus is the answer. If your problem is the ability to pay your mortgage this month, weep not. Jesus is the answer. If your problem is a need of transportation, weep not. Jesus is the answer. How about a broken marriage? If your problem is a broken marriage or one that's falling apart, weep not. Jesus is the answer. Some of us have the problem of a wayward child. Weep not. Jesus is the answer. Or an unsaved child or an unsaved mate. Weep not. Jesus is the answer. If your problem today is a closer relationship with God, you've lost that vibrant fire that you had at first, weep not. Jesus is the answer. And again, most importantly, if your problem today is a need of a savior, weep not. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. Weep not. Look to Jesus and he'll meet the need. Oh, what a precious savior. But then verse five tells us what John saw. We're told that there was a conquering lion. The elder tells John that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. When John hears the title the lion of the tribe of Judah, he immediately knows that that elder is referring to the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 49, the Jews are promised that a great ruler will arise out of Judah. Like a lion, he'll be powerful, strong, brave, majestic. He'll be a mighty conqueror. The Jews were looking for a Messiah who would throw off the yoke of their oppressors and give them liberty. They were looking for a military leader to lead them to victory over their enemies. But this person's also called the root of David. And this title reflects both the humanity and the deity of the Messiah who was to come. He would raise up the withered branch of the line of David and bring it to power once again. That's the human side of the Messiah. But he was also the power behind the throne. The Messiah was the root out of which David sprang. So he was a king, he is a king, and he always will be the king of kings. Jesus came into this world claiming to be the Messiah, but he did not fulfill the expectations of the Jewish people. Instead of delivering them from bondage and a great military victory, he went about healing, preaching, performing miracles. And as a result, the Jews rejected him And they crucified their their Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of David, and the root of David, Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the root of David. When John hears of Jesus in heaven, he's described as a mighty lion and a king, the King of Kings. John's told that the lion has prevailed, so Jesus is described as a conquering lion. But when John turns around to see the lion, he doesn't see a lion; he sees the Lamb. A little precious lamb, a lamb that's been slain. And the word lamb here means a little lamb, if you were a pet lamb, a precious lamb. When John looked, he expected to see a great powerful lion, and what he saw instead was this little precious lamb. And of course, <coughs> excuse me, this scene is wrapped up in Jewish symbolism also. With this image of the little lamb, we're reminded of the Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, the people of Israel were told to select a perfect lamb, one without spot, one without blemish, and they were to take the lamb home, nourish it, care for it for four days. During that time, you know what happened. You ever have kids in your home and you brought home a little puppy? How long did it take them to love that little puppy? It doesn't take four days. And that lamb became just like a pet lamb to the family. But on the prescribed day where they were to take that lamb and kill it and apply its blood to the doorposts and the littles of their home and roast its little body and eat it. And when the people did this, they were promised, promised by God that when he came and judged the Egyptians, he would not judge those people who were covered by the blood. And don't you know that it broke the hearts of that little family to kill that lamb and that... Little dead lamb, the Israelites were given a powerful picture of what God was going to do someday through the Redeemer. The Redeemer he was going to send into the world. And just as that family would kill that little lamb, God would judge his beloved son on Calvary's cross. And how it must have broken the father's heart. Think about that. How it must have broken his heart to send his son into a world filled with people who would hate him, reject him, crucify him, how it must have broken the heart of the father to judge the son in the place of sinners. But it was on that cross, it was on that cross that heaven won the greatest victory of all time and eternity. We're told that the lion, the lion lamb has prevailed. Well, that word means to carry off the victory. Just because Jesus is a lamb and depicted as a lamb does not mean that he's weak. Jesus carried off the victory at every possible turn. He carried off the victory on the Mount of Temptation. Satan thought that Jesus was going to fall. He carried off the victory in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, uh, Satan thought that Jesus was going to fail. And he carried off the victory on the cross. In John 19, Satan thought Jesus was a fool. But he carried off the victory when he rose from the dead. Satan thought Jesus was finished. But up from the grave he arose, and Satan thought he had defeated Jesus when Jesus died on the cross. You know, hell must have celebrated that day as the broken, bleeding body of Jesus was removed from that cross and placed in a cold, borrowed tomb. And for three days, I can imagine that the demons of hell must have cavorted in glee as they celebrated what they thought was Satan's victory over the Lord Jesus. In my mind's eye, I can picture and see the the demons trying to hold back Jesus in the resurrection. The Roman guards were told to put a seal on that tomb and to make sure that no one stole the body or that Jesus did not rise out of that body. And I'm sure that Satan instructed his demons to do the same thing because he promised that he would rise. And I can see in my mind's eye, Jesus, day one, Demons report back to God. Say, hey, everything's all right. He's dead in a doornail. Day two. Look at him. He hasn't moved a muscle. <coughs> Day three. And the demons are there and say, Satan, I can't hold it back. I can't hold him back. Satan, help me. And up from the grave he arose. Praise, Praise God he rose again. The cross was God's greatest accomplishment. In the cross, God displayed more power and glory than he did in creation. When Jesus cried, it is finished, it was far more important than he said, let there be light. Satan's power is described as massive. Jesus is called the lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation. Satan is described as a great red dragon. But heaven's response To that infernal power is to send a precious lamb. When a nation chooses a symbol, they choose something that's really important. Uh, The symbol of England is a lion. The symbol symbol of Russia is a bear. The symbol of the United States is an eagle. But when heaven looked for a symbol, it chose a lamb, a slain lamb. A symbol of meekness, gentleness, not weakness, And Jesus conquered Satan's kingdom, not by military strength, but by his death. Beloved, the day is going to come when Satan is going to gather together all of the armies of the earth, all of the demons that are going to be present, and Jesus is going to come to defeat him. And we're coming with him told you we had a front row seat. We're coming with him. And as I heard Dr. David Jeremiah say one day when he was preaching on this similar subject, he said, you know how Satan's going to be defeated? Watch this. That's it. With a breath of his mouth, Satan's going to be defeated. That little lamb won the victory. And because of that, he's worthy to take the book. The lamb is in heaven. He's not in a dirty manger. He's not on a dusty road in Galilee. He's not on a ship in a storm. He's not seated on a well, thirsty and hungry. He's not hanging naked in shame and agony on a cross. He's not lying in a cold, sealed tomb. He's where he deserves to be. He's glorified. He's exalted. He's in heaven. Hallelujah to the Lamb. The Lamb that had been there all along. The lamb had been in the midst of the action, but John hadn't seen him until now. He'd been there the whole time. Let me just remind you that Jesus is always in the midst when we gather. We might not recognize him, but he's always here. And this lamb still bore the marks of having been slain. When we see Jesus in heaven, we're going to see the marks, the nail prints in his hands. And like Thomas, we're going to see the riven sides. All through eternity, we're going to know that Jesus paid the price for us. There'll be no room for any boasting or bragging in heaven. Nobody will ever be able to say, look, I got here all by myself. Look what I did. I'm here. No, we're going to see love on a permanent display. And what a cause for continuous worship and praise. We think sometimes it's going to, what are we going to do in heaven? Eternity is a long time. What are we going to do? We're going to be praising God. And that's the reason why. Notice also that the Lamb was standing. The Lamb was standing. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, we're told in Hebrews 1, 3, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down. Why? Because his work was finished. His work of redeeming sinners was finished. Once he stood in the presence of a mean, nasty, hateful, ridiculing band of men. They covered him with spit. They plucked out his beard. They mocked and they ridiculed him and they beat him beyond recognition. And from Jesus, no word of remonstrance, no gesture of resistance. He willingly gave up his life and he died. Our sins are atoned for. Our lives are bought, blood bought back to God. And now, now, now the day has come for God to cast Satan out of it and his whole crowd out. And Jesus stands in these verses Because his work of delivering the earth is about to begin. The lamb has seven eyes. He's all wise and all knowing. The lamb is omniscient. Nothing is going to escape his gaze. And then we see in verse 7 that he's a completing lord. The lamb takes the book out of the hand of the father. He's now standing. He takes the book from the father. And when he does, heaven breaks out in an anthem of praise. Heaven knows that Jesus is about to do the work of the lion and deliver the earth in creation for the bondage of Satan. He's about to create his redemptive work. The lamb is worthy to take the book and to open the seals. And this scroll is really the title deed to planet earth. What right does Jesus have to open it? Well, I think there's three reasons that he can open it. The world is his by right of creation. He made it. The world is his, right, is his by right of Calvary. He redeemed it. And his world, this world, is his by right of conquest. He's going to retake it. So in conclusion, beloved, one day in heaven, the Lamb is going to take the seven-sealed scroll out of the hand of the Father. And remember the, the sequence of events. The rapture has already taken place. We're going to be there in heaven with him. We're going to see the lamb take the book, the scroll from the hand of the father. And when he does, it's going to signal the beginning of the end for sin and for Satan. On that day, Jesus is going to get the glory that he's been denied by the world for so long. He'll be shown to be worthy of all worship. We worship him now. The world will worship him then. I saw just recently... Yesterday, something about an atheist. Atheism is a temporary condition because someday, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father and he'll be shown to be worthy of all worship and to rule and to reign over all creation. He's earned the right because he squared off against all the hell, and he carried off the victory. Jesus is a winner, and those who know him as their saviors are winners too. When Jesus stands up and he opens that scroll, we'll be standing there watching him, and we'll rejoice as he takes the world by force. That's only chapter five. There's 22 chapters. Read the rest of the book. Would you bow with me as we close?